live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. There is no shortage of disaster in the world. Epidemics, wars, earthquakes, tsunamis, the list goes on, claim countless lives every year. For those who live, life often becomes a series of tragedy and tribulation, as they are left without food, shelter, or even their own health. Worse yet, in these disaster-stricken countries, the infrastructure often collapses only to exacerbate the situation. As the civil war in Syria rages on, almost half a million people have lost their lives and hundreds of thousands more are left homeless and helpless. The 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami claimed the lives of about a quarter of a million people. The 2010 earthquake in Haiti, the Cyclone Nargis of 2008 in Myanmar, and these are just in our recent history. In 1556, the Shaanxi earthquake in China killed over 800,000 people. As we said, the world is not lacking in disaster. But we are not here to talk about the destruction that our home, planet Earth, doles out every once in a while as if it's taking some sadistic form of rent. We're here to talk about some good. About how in disaster people come to the aid of other people. Real heroes to the rescue. One such organization is ISRAID, a non-for-profit that provides disaster relief around the globe, helping literally rescue people from the rubble or ashes or flooded streets, providing them with immediate medical care, food, and shelter. But it doesn't end there. Israel sticks around long after the emergency state is over in an effort to help rehabilitate the disaster-stricken country, to facilitate the renewal and building of infrastructure so that after the organization leaves the country can live on. We decided to prepare a two-part special with two people from the organization. In part one, we spoke with Ofeli, who worked in South Sudan for five years. She told us about how Israel strives to help educate and train the local national service providers to do the work themselves, so that when the organization leaves, these local entities can carry on and rebuild the wounded country. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. Who is with us today, Eitan? So... Rachel, I mean, Ophelia, Ophelia, no, Ophelia, Namiech? Namiech. Namiech. Okay, you have, uh, you, have to, you have to give us the proper pronunciation once and then we can say it from now on. Okay, in French? Yeah. Ophelia, Namiech. Namiech. Ophelia, Namiech. Or Nachmiech. I'm going to confuse you even more. We just wanted one time proper pronunciation. Just say Nachmiech from the hood. Okay, so like I said, Rachel. Um, yeah, that's, it, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ophelie um, works in Israel, and um, you came today to talk to us a little bit about your work with them. Um, Israel is us, like the common theme of this episode, yeah, exactly. one might say. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a common thread. Yeah, I don't know if I call it a theme. Okay. More like a topic. Okay. Yeah, something Noted. that connects. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So um, maybe give us a little bit of background where you're from and what, you know, what you here? did before, what brings you to Israel. 
just kind of wow. the whole shebang. That, that could actually you know, take an hour. Some of yeah, some <laughs> some of, however many years of your life in, in a sentence. In, you can, in a you sentence, could take, you could take two. Um, okay, so I am Ophelia. Ophelia. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, so I'm working now for Israel for six years, and out of those six years, five and a half years in South Sudan. So for the funny story. Uh, I was work. I was actually. I'm from France, but uh, I was working the UN in in New York and studying there for a couple of years, and then I was given in the UN to work on Sudan and DRC Congo. Randomly? Well, actually, I came in 2008 when I started. I was given Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, oh. so I was in charge of following Israeli Arabs affairs and Security Council. And then I became a bit too emotionally involved and it was a bit tough for me mm-hmm. personally. So I asked them uh, by that time to give me other, um, other topics to, to, to deal with, to follow, also to broaden my horizons. And uh, I was given Sudan and then that Congo. That was, yeah, really Congo. lighten things up <laughs> with some South Sudan. Yeah, that was not South Sudan yet, but uh, yeah. that, was, uh, that, was, that, was quite, uh, that was quite interesting because it was in the process of, you know. Yeah. Uh, what did you know about this country? At that time, actually, not much. Close to nothing, you know, and they give you in the UN to, to work on something. Usually <laughs> it's bureaucratic. So you don't need to be very much familiar with the context, but you learn. You learn. It was an amazing experience, actually, to work in the UN and, 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 and learn about this context. And then, weirdly enough, I, uh, I think I read a um, Jerusalem Post uh, article at that time that explained the very interesting relationship between Israel and Sudan. With Israel supporting the South of Sudan, who South, are Christians, South, Christians South, against the Muslims, against the Muslims. So Iran is ba- it's like a proxy war kind of dynamic in which you have Iran, Iran um, supporting Sudan, and then Israel was uh, has been supporting Southern Sudan in their efforts to reach independence. Why? So that was actually why did we do that? Why did we do that? Um, <laughs> the real Because it's fun. <laughs> so the real nothing answer. else to do. No, actually, strategically, uh, you know, Ben Gurion um, identified Southern Sudan in 1955 as one of the most strategic areas for Israel. Uh, really? In East Africa. Um, How so? So Golda Meira and so on. And um, they actually sent uh, an Israeli um, representative in 1969 to, uh, to, to build or to support the building of the South Sudan Army, the SPLA, Sudan Liberation People's Army. Which was an insurgency at that time. It wasn't Yeah, actually... and to build a collective narrative uh, around an army because at that time it was just, um, I mean just, it was, um, uh, it was a couple of, it was basically... A tribal context with people, with boys and arrows, um, fighting for independence without the collective narrative around what it is to be an army uh, strategically and so on and so forth. So Israel um, supported in the process, the government of Israel. And um, and it's it. So I decide, I actually became very interested in that. I'm actually now starting my PhD on Israel, South Sudan. Well, Sudan, South Sudan, strategic relationship. It's like a, actually a really interesting dynamic. Um, so 
as a coincidence, it linked my two interests, you know, mm -hmm. Af East Africa and, and Israel. Right. So going back to the funny story, so to speak, um, after I finished my, my master in, um, in New York, and I was still working in the UN at that time, I was given the opportunity to go to work in Sudan. But at the time, it was Sudan, Khartoum. Right. And I was only French. I didn't have my Israeli uh, citizenship yet. And for some, for you, it was an opportunity. For others, it would be suicidal mission. That was amazing. Because, you know, <laughs> it was 2011. Yes. So it was end of 2010. And we knew that 2011 would be the referendum for the uh, cessation of, of, of the south of Sudan. Right. Which we led a couple of months later to the independence in, um, mm -hmm. in July 2011. For somebody who studied... Um, post-conflict reconstruction and institution building in fragile environment like me it's like the unique the most unique opportunity ever to actually be part in, and be and witness the a birth state. of a new nation yeah. it's not every day so it's uh, even now I'm talking to you I have goosebumps because it's 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 very it's it's a fascinating experience so I was given the opportunity to go to to new to to New York not yet to Khartoum to um, uh, work for uh, UN and in the same time I wanted to make Aliyah. so for eight months I was completely confused well, am I going to make Aliyah or am I going to go to Sudan because those two are my two dreams mm -hmm. two yes. things that I really care about and I'm, I'm, I'm really keen on exploring further And then at the end of those eight months, I said, okay, I can't, I can't decide. So I'm going to do both. I'm going to make Aliyah and I'm going to find a crazy way to uh, work on what was going to become South Sudan. And because we knew by that time that Israel was somehow already connected with the, South, the southern part of Sudan, I thought, okay, this is what I'm, I'm going to be doing. So, cool. yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy, I think it's, it's a cool story because it's, All my friends told me, you're crazy. Listen, you come to Mekalia, you don't speak Hebrew. Your field is very narrow. Who knows about institution building in the in post-conflict environment? What does that even mean? And you want to narrow it down even more by focusing on a country that doesn't even exist? <laughs> you, know, you know, people, when they make Aliyah, they make compromise. They look, uh, you know, they try to broaden. No, I had this, 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 uh, this obsession in mind and I contacted everybody in Israel Uh, government offices, NGOs, public sector, private sector, until I uh, I found this raid and I gave them a headache for eight months. Saying, What did you say to them? Um, so I basically explained why it's important um, like for Israeli um, civil society, uh, not a government, civil society to, to be part of that nation slash state building process so you actually helped them kind of initiate their their place in south sudan meaning they weren't planning on going before you came along uh maybe they were they were planning but they were um i i put they weren't I, there no they were not they were not they were not there and i i um yeah i, I pushed it i harassed them even <laughs> <laughs> saying uh, I think this is a unique opportunity to, to use the Israeli leverage in this part of the world and bring from a civil society perspective um, and, and, and also unique expect, a unique angle of, of, of building a nation from scratch. And mm -hmm. I think we're, we are pretty good at, at knowing what it means. 
So what what does that mean? You went to South Sudan. You came. So you made Aliyah. Yeah. And then almost immediately afterwards went to. Yeah. Uh, six months later, my the my uh, the, the 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 executive director at that time told me, okay, Ophelia, you are giving us so much headache. Here is a little amount of money. You have four days. Go to South Sudan. Stop giving us headaches. Which really would have been a punishment for anybody else. And you were like, yeah. Yay. I get to go to South I Sudan. Know, most, I think it's probably the most amazing day of my, of my life. Of my career, four days? I had four days to come up with something. And uh, so I, um, I went there for four days to do an assessment mm-hmm. to see what we could do with this little m- amount of money that we had allocated for that mission, so to speak. And How much uh, money five can years, we ask? Uh, at that time, 100K, so $100,000, okay. which is nothing. Just, now our budget is $2 million. So it's wow. pretty cool. It's Annual, after that. Annually or total uh, as of 2017. now? 2017. Ah, okay. Coming from where the budget then? So that's another cool story. <laughs> Wait, so let's go let's finish the four <laughs> days remember, and then, remember to go and back then to we'll it. go back to follow the money. Yeah, follow the money. Russian arms. She made a face. I'm glad it's not live, then you can cut. Um. Oh, we're not cutting anything. <laughs> okay, no, so you had so four days to plan so this thing out. Days. How to build a nation. Uh, no, no, you gotta talk no, to the mic though. Oh yeah, sorry. How to build a nation in four days. Let's go. Um yeah, so four days. I had four days to see what we're going to do with this 100K. And, you know, what? Try to prove my case that we have something that is feasible and realistic over there. And, uh, yeah, I stayed there. I was there for, I was supposed to be there for four days and I stayed five and a half years. Ah, wow. <laughs> so that's pretty, okay, I came back for holidays, but yeah, that's, that's pretty how, much. How? Listen, I, I think it's a combination of luck. Uh, let us uh, be honest. I think it's a combination of luck. Uh, we arrive at the right timing. Again, being Israeli anywhere in the world is can be a burden. Mm-hmm. You know, in South Sudan is the biggest asset someone can ever dream. So, How so? Because they, you know, for example, the, the day of the independence on, in July 2011... You could see all the newly established is, uh, South Sudan flag and the Israeli flag. Really? People are really, uh, first of all, very rec- um, recognizing, you know, they're, they're very much um, um, appreciative of the efforts of Israel, or Israeli government, in their efforts of, of, of uh, obtaining independence, seeking independence, um, supporting the process. Um, all of them remember, you know, they always tell you 1969, the year where the Israeli came and build this whole, you know, again, mm-hmm. collective narrative against around the army and, 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 and provided a lot of military slash technical support. Um, this, this, and it's very much easy as a result to be Israeli and they, it opens you all the doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other reasons is um, the, the the religious aspect, you know, the Holy Land, Jesus Land. It's like evangelists in the states. Uh, okay, mm. I would not go that far, but yeah, that direction. That's the spirit. <laughs> That's yeah. the spirit, absolutely. Um, so there's this 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 dynamic, this very positive dynamic for everybody who's Israeli over there. Mm-hmm. So it it really helped. And um, and again, I mean, you know, I I don't know, you know, sometimes you reach a country. And then you feel like that's it. You know, you feel like you have a special connection that you cannot really explain. 
And that's what happened to me. I immediately spoke the language and by speaking the language, I don't mean Arabic or Juba Arabic because even after five years, it's really poor. But the the culture, there was something, there was a click. It was you a got match. it. It was a match. Mm-hmm. You take me yeah. in, I, I went to Haiti, I went to Congo, I went to other places. I did my job, but there was not this click, this match. South Sudan was just... Uh, the thing, the country. So people also see it and connect with it. So what did you do there for five years? So we opened the up. Well, um, I studied by myself, but then slowly, slowly we built a team, an amazing team, uh, mostly made of national um, national um, staff and also international advisors. We build um, a team and we build an office. So I studied alone. Now we. In South Sudan, we're 51 staff. We're operating in half of the country um, in, co- in places that are very difficult to reach. There's an ongoing conflict, which is one of the biggest conflict right now and the biggest humanitarian crisis after Syria. But shouldn't ha- the war have ended the conflict? No. Uh, the, not the war, sorry, the, the new state. Yeah. Shouldn't it end the cl- conflict? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a new conflict. So basically, there was the conflict with the North that ended in 2005. They reached a peace agreement between the North and the South, providing semi-autonomous status to the South with a plan uh, up to 2011 to reach possibly independence if it's selected by the people in the referendum in January 2011. So anyway, um, they reached independence and a year and a half later, December 2013, um internal conflict, civil war erupted between two main tribes, Nuer and Dinkas, one led by um, the current president, one tribe, one part led by the current president and the other um, tribe and the re- the rebel, the in opposition uh, All group. All Christians. Within South Sudan. Within itself. South Sudan. Um, so there started the first uh, part of the civil war, uh, which ended in August 2015 with a very, very fragile peace agreement, which was imposed by the international community, not wanted by the parties. And a few months later, this, the, the, the war, the conflict started again in very, very intense ways in July mm-hmm. last year. Um, and it, it expanded not... It, at first, it was restricted between the two main tribes, but then it expanded, including different factions, different power struggles, different uh, ethnical belongings to a point that um, at the end it was just like a multipolar conflict with everybody shooting and, 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 and killing. And and you guys were there yeah. during this time. Yeah. So can you tell us about how that was to be there during the war? Um, so programmatically speaking and then personally like programmatically speaking we had to switch from um, uh, a post-independence dynamic in which we were focusing on institutional development so accompanying you know our national partners whether government or civil society in the efforts to develop systems uh, um, service delivery system whether in public health or in education or in protection because there was nothing. There was mm-hmm. no services for the public. So we were working with our national counterparts to build a system, to build long-term um, service delivery mechanism. Um, so working with ministries, building a long-term strategic plan um, to develop social services or health services. So this is where we started. But then mm-hmm. in 2013, and especially in 2016, when the war uh, erupted, 
we had to switch from a more stabilized environment to an emergency response dynamic. So mm -hmm. in an emergency response, you have massive displacement of, of population who are affected by the conflict and, 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 and the trauma and the displacement. So you have, to you, you have to respond to the immediate needs of those populations. Mm -hmm. So we are not in the long term building a country anymore. We are responding to the needs right away. Food, water... Yeah. For, Shelter. Yeah. So for us in San Sudan, we focused essentially on what we call protection. So protection of vulnerable communities like women who've been victim of, of rape and sexual abuse, which is massive, um, and especially since 2015. Uh, children, accompanied minors, orphans. Mm -hmm. So all the vulnerable groups. Um, so we, we call it protection and under protection you have um, gender-based violence. So this is what I described, child protection, psychosocial support mm -hmm. um, to deal with traumatic, uh, the trauma um, uh, resulting from the conflict and displacement. Now you dealt with this in a very uh, administrative way it seems, but I mean I'm sure you had to encounter it personally yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so can so, you yeah, tell us so how you... That, yeah, so that's why on the programmatic aspect, this was it. On the personal aspect, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's not an easy thing to, to share. But, uh, you know, the, diff the most difficult part is, as I mentioned at the beginning, when I came at the, in 2011, it was a country full of hope, full of optimism. You could see smiles on faces. You could see people celebrating something they've been fighting for more than 50 years with the North. Finally, they reach their independence. Finally, they get away from the, from, from, from the oppression that they felt for uh, more than five decades. Um, so there is an optimism to build, uh, to build the country. And mm -hmm. you felt it. You felt it everywhere. There was this dynam this positive dynamic everywhere. And, ev and the first, second, and even third anniversary of the independence, there was joys. There were happiness. There were a good productive dynamic of work. And then slowly, slowly, slowly from 2013 to, to 2016, this hope turned into complete despair. No cash in the in the country, no fuel, not even the ability to buy water for for you know, eight hundred percent inflation. Mm -hmm. People not receiving salaries. So um, what did you see? What did I see? Uh, what did you? Ex how did you experience it? Um. Again, I felt you know. It was a different country. Your work was, changed. The work changed. How? Uh, the work changed, as I said, because we were working now in emergency. So we were working in displacement camps. We were working with people with really, really deep trauma. We've been through horrible things like during the conflict and during the displacement. Rape, massive... Uh, uh, Genocides? Like of villages? <laughs> no, I mean like you had villages who were wiped and such. So What are we talking about here in the civil war? So we're talking about uh, women and girls who've been, you know, gang raped, um, children who've seen their parents being killed in front of them or they've been targeted because of their ethnicity. Um, we've seen a lot, a lot of, you know, domestic violence and abuse, physical and emotional against um, girls and, and women. This and you managed to help these people? 
help is a big word, you know. I always say that we don't help, we accompany. Um, we have, that's my, we have, our phys- philosophy is that, you know, even in emergency response, our role is not to provide direct support. Unless maybe there is a earthquake or there is a, a natural disaster. But our role as international actors should be to accompany the national actors, the national service providers in their own efforts to deliver the services. Mm-hmm. This is how you build Support sustainability. Them. This is how you, 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 you build local ownership. is not to provide you as an international respondent directly the services, but work on building a long-term response. And that... That way, you, 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 you work with, with national service providers. So in that sense, yes, because before we arrived, and, and, and I have to be honest, this is something I have witnessed, um, no, there was no national entities, South Sudanese entities and individual uh, entities, that had the capacity uh, or were given the capacity to respond. So there was a deep, a, a deep reliance on the international NGOs working. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, international NGOs, they, they fuel this dependence because they, they live on that, mm-hmm. which is actually one of the big uh, negative aspects of, of, uh, of international development and humanitarian response. Uh, and I remember at the beginning just after 2013, going to a room to plan the emergency response full of internationals, not single national entities. Mm-hmm. And, and me saying, there's something wrong. We should not be just us, international Israelis or Americans. The white people who came here to, to yeah, save the, the black wrong. people. There's something wrong. We need to help them to help themselves, basically. That's the... the sp- yeah, uh, so we need to... To, to put the uh, ego aside, I don't know what it is exactly, but we need to actually embrace that sustainable approach in which we our mandate should be to train or to accompany or to provide the technical support of existing services, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're government or civil society, to, uh, to provide the response, whether in emergency or in stabilized context. So you... And now, anyway, a few years later, now you see in the, in the response uh, coordination mechanism, you see the, the community-based organization, you see the national uh, organization that are represent, not only represented in the decision-making process, but they're leading it. Mm-hmm. And this is a result, I think, of our work of really investing in the capacity building of those, of those partners. So you help facilitate the uh, building of infrastructure of, of national services. But I, I, I wonder when you were there, did you develop interpersonal relationships with locals or was your, were your relationships mostly within the Israel community or did you meet people there on the ground that you know, were living through this as civilians? Yeah, actually most... We, in, in fact, I'm, I was lucky to work for Israel because, you know, I'm not sure I should say that, but when you work for the UN, or and I worked for the UN before for five years, so uh, you have a very strict uh, code of, like, not a code of conduct, but a very strict protocols. You cannot get out of your car, you cannot get out of your uh, compound. If you get out, you have to close your windows in the car and you cannot uh, date a national. And really? Um, you have all these crazy rules, right? Yeah. If you do, you have to wear protection. <laughs> no, but uh, it is... In, in the, the fine print. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, 
They have those crazy... And Israel are like, yeah, you can date Sudanese. <laughs> you should. <laughs> you should. <laughs> uh, no, but... Um, so with Israel, it has more like a community-based approach and, and more flexible. So we didn't have all those rules, um, which actually enabled us to really like get into, into the context and, and really truly understand it. So going to the bar in the evening and chat with... Uh, with uh, national friends, you know, part, like uh, as guys, girls, mm-hmm. everyday people, going to a club with them and uh, and going to a picnic club when it was still safe to go to club. Did you have contact with soldiers? Soldiers. And people participating in the civil war, actually? Listen, I, I was living in a bar for five years. So basically, it's what? a really cool thing. <laughs> I Say was, what now? I was living in a compound, which was also a bar. Okay. Okay. So okay. my room was literally 50 meters from a bar. And the bar is the best way to get to know South Sudan or any place. All the like, truth comes out. You see, and the whole evening you meet journalists, uh, priests, missionaries, mercenaries, NGO people, journalists, waiters, prostitutes, and uh, UN people. And, and, and Sometimes they're combined. Like you have a, <laughs> a mercenary prostitute. <laughs> yes. Why not? <laughs> um, so yeah, so then you have like you sit there and then you you have all these amazing discussions about how people perceive South Sudan and that's how you so get to know. Tell us about South such an amazing discussion. One discussion from the bar that you cannot forget. Oh wow, there's a lot. Um, so there was one guy. Um, wow, there's so many. It's five and a half years. By the way, I want to read. I want to write a book about this bar. It's called the Bedouin Bar. So once I publish it, <laughs> I'll send you a copy because this, this is like the best social interactions you, one can get. Um, so there was a priest, an Irish priest at the bar. Um, and he's been in South Sudan for 30 years. Very old man, a bit drunk. <laughs> uh, very difficult to understand what he's still doing there. Like completely PTSD, completely post-trauma. Like he was... I mean, he looked 90, I guess he was maybe 70, but he looked really affected by 30 years in South Su- in, in Sudan, in South Sudan. And um, everybody is telling me he saved so many people and he's the, 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 the big figure in South Sudan. And me, all I can see is a drunk priest, you know, uh, <laughs> very red and not making a lot of sense. But, uh, we, you know, everybody's in around the bar, so you, you, you have those very weird and strong personalities, very interesting. And then one day, um, there was a young guy, maybe like 30 years, South Sudanese, come, see him, start crying. And uh, so everybody stops their conversation around the bar and looking at them saying like, what's going on? And the priests also look at them and you see there is something going on. And actually, the, the, the 30-year-old South Sudanese guy was one of the Lost Boys. So the Lost Boys, the, the, the South Sudanese kids that were like child soldiers. And then there, some of them were rescued and, and saved and, and taken out. And he, this priest is the one who was basically saving all these children from being pulled in, in the armed forces. And he saved that guy when he was nine years old. And 25 years so not so good in math, later, he, this young, uh, lost boy, as we call it, and, uh, come to a bar randomly and see the guy, the priest who saved his life 25 years back. So 
It was a big thing. Everybody crying. Everybody. So this is the type of thing that you were seeing on the That's on a typical daily, evening. A daily, daily basis. Absolutely. <laughs> on a daily basis. Now, did you ever speak to the South Sudanese themselves? Like, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you yeah. did. But can you tell us about, you know, I don't know, a South Sudanese person who you spoke with who shared their experiences living in South Sudan through this how they see it how they see the war the civil war experiences it's they the went same through. thing you know again it depends which South Sudanese you know you have the South Sudanese that work with us every day so let's say middle class um, or like social workers and they they want to they want to they want to save their country you know they're they are desperate also but they want to be part of it they want to to to, to contribute they want to um, to make an impact to try to do something to make the situation a little bit better uh, but then you have the, the beneficiaries, the people in the camp um, who basically don't have a job or they're just, you know, they're just trying to survive. Um, and, and they lost everything. They, their villages were burned. Um, their daughters were killed or raped. Their husbands were killed mostly. And they end up with the, to take care of 20 children because... You met help. women like this all the, every day. That was that was the work, and um, and the, then they don't have anywhere to to live. They lost everything, so they end up in a in a UN camp or a, a random camp outside the the UN base, and and then they they are completely vulnerable because you have soldiers all around them trying to target them at night or even during the day. People drunk, people who lost complete face in anything. So you have a complete level of vulnerability and 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 you see that every day. And actually it got worse. It got mm -hmm. worse. Can you tell us about a woman that you met personally that touched you? Well, it's it's every day, but uh, I had friend, my first maybe. encounter. No. <laughs> it's very <laughs> it gets very hard because it, I remember saying one uh, one thing to an Israeli colleague who came in November. Every day you have to deal with a difficult situation. There is not one day when you can't. So, for example, my I think my first encounter, even before the war, I think in 2012, um, we went to the marketplace with one of our national partner. Um, to she wanted to show me the vulnerability of the girls like young girls, how they leave and what they do. And and behind the market, this is where like men abuse them and take them for prostitution or sex coercion and so, and so on and so forth. So she wanted to show me that place and also some brothels. And, and you know, so that I know what I'm going to deal with in programs. I was at the very beginning. And then that day, uh, I saw a girl. She, at that time, she was eight years old. And she was naked, and there was like five drunk men around there, around her, and they were like trying to take, like they were taking her like one by one and pushing her, saying which one is taking next. And I'm here standing, and a white girl in the market with that other woman was with me, and I said, we can't, we can't leave this girl like that. There's no way. And you know, I was new in South Sudan and I was still young, full of my ideal thinking we can just help and save everyone, which, you know, actually after five years, you get a little bit bitter. But I said, no, we can't leave this girl. So we took the girl 
in our car, which is really, you know, there's a lot, you know, again, what, what is professional? What does it mean? Like, you take a girl without the authorization of the government, like, but this, this girl is being right in front of your eyes. So I'm like, person, I put the professional aspect aside, not trying to know what is the protocol, just like got stuck in my, in my emotion, which may or not be good. I don't know. And we took the girl in the car. And, I, and then uh, as soon as she entered the car, you could see her face lighting, you know, starting smiling and, 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 and feeling safe. Right away, you see her face completely changing from fear to hope or at least feeling of safety. And then the drunk guys, of course, tried to, you know, run after her, throwing rocks and stuff. So we took the girls to the shelter that my colleague was, uh, was uh, still owning. Uh, somebody that we train, a shelter for girls who've been abused that we support and, 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 and we have problem with. Um, and the girl has been staying there. Okay, then we did all the legal aspect. We went to the government. We got all the aspect that she could, you know, stay in the shelter. So now she's been in this shelter for the past seven, uh, five years, four years, five years you almost. You kept track of her. Not only had cut track, but we became so close. I mean, I, 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 I it's, it's an amazing story. She's big. She's obviously taller than me. Like she, <laughs> she's, it's not difficult, but she's like 12 years old. She's a beautiful lady and she's really empowered. She speaks fluent English. Wow. Um, she, so, uh, she's part of, of, and, and, and it was very difficult to leave now because I left her and we were, we had this very special bound, you know? She didn't speak English at that time, but there was there was this this emotional connection that was created in in, in that moment, and um, and then she joined the other girls who had similar story than her, like about forty in that shelter, and Israel is uh, is uh, working with this shelter, training the social workers, the psychologists, uh, uh, building case management system for the girls and the women who've been abused. But this girl was like outside of the work framework. It was just a personal connection, something I've seen mm -hmm. and I felt really, you know, touched. That probably, that probably helps you to get through the, the hard times to have something like that in front of your eyes that you can see. Yeah, but that, then it happens every day for five yeah. years. But you see. <laughs> it was the first time. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was like. Maybe, wow, maybe right? you'll, maybe you'll be in a bar in 25 years from now in South Sudan and she'll walk in and. Yeah, yeah, like the and, priest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, I, I'm sorry to spoil the party, but I can't help but thinking. First of all, the story you just told reminds me of those time travel films in which uh, the rule is do not intervene yeah. in, the, in the Absolutely. environment, right? Absolutely. But then the hero always intervenes and, uh, and that's what you did because you can't help it. But for, for each one girl like that that you saved, probably there are hundreds... Yeah, uh, of girls who are raped absolutely. or murdered every day. Absolutely. So that's a grim thought that comes to mind. The second grim thought, thought, as you said, the five years brought bitterness. And I want to talk about it because from my perspective, the whole story you just told sounds like this. So th this, there is this African country, okay? They got uh, independence uh, only to start killing each other. Uh, which is not surprising uh, to us uh, Westerners, right? We always think about Africans. As, mm. And they start actually, like the stereotype, killing each, each other. And here we come, the mm. white people, mm. and uh, we, do, we cannot or do not want to actually 
help stop the war. Maybe we can't, maybe we don't want to. Instead, we facilitate those places, which is an, it's a needle in a haystack. Mm. And, and maybe it just helps us to feel better, mm. but it doesn't really change reality. That's the grim thoughts yeah, that yeah. come to mind. Actually, it's, no, it's, it's a very good point. And I, I don't... I'm just going to go I, jump I, out the window real quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's actually... I'm glad that you're raising So that. is it about them or about you? That's yeah, my question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very good uh, uh, comment. Um, and this is something that in this field we think about a lot. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll answer in, in, a, in a few, in a few parts. You, you said something about, uh, um, what was your first uh, comment uh, before you said like, about, uh, uh, the girl that you said for, for each ah, girl yeah, that yeah, you yeah. say yeah, yeah, there voilà. are thousands. Okay, okay. So just to start with this, um, I completely, I completely, completely agree. I see all the missionaries all the time doing that, coming to volunteer, the concept of volunteer and you, you Sorry, and you play a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of guitar around the sick babies and you put flowers in your hand. We see that all the time. And uh, it's, it's, it's something that we call uh, humanitarian tourism, you know, and it's something that I'm, uh, I'm personally fighting by uh, doing other things on the side and giving courses and trying to professionalize that field because uh, I have issue with the notion of volunteering, but we can get back to on it later. Um, so this is why I think the model, of, the model of an international NGO should be like that, according to me. That's my own personal view, okay? Um, there's three layers of actors. So the first one is the donors, uh, UN, DFID, USAID, the usual big donors. Their mandate should be to provide the money with guidance, with technical support, but those are the donors. Then you have the second layers, which are the international NGOs, which is Israel and others, okay? And then the last layer is the national, uh, what we call CBOs, community-based organizations, okay? So we should actually limit and restrict our mandate to providing technical support and training when needed, not provide direct assistance. Because that, A, that creates dependency, uh, and we see it in South Sudan. We have made this mistake everywhere, in Haiti, in Congo, when, we say, when I say we, I mean the international community. And yet we reproduce it in South Sudan. We're creating this dependency. Let us be on it. Why? Because we need, international community needs, need those. Need we need to work. feel good about ourselves. Need to feel good. It's a job. It's it's a and there's it's a, a money. business. There's, it's a business. It's a business, yes. and it's a dirty business. I'm sorry. Now I'm starting to, <laughs> to go. Uh, <laughs> no, it's see, that's what I'm saying. Getting it's my, interesting. It's my personal <laughs> view. Okay, this is me, Ophelia. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a business, and and I think what we need to focus on and try to I will not say reform the way it works because let us be realistic, but try to 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 modify slightly, if we can, the approach and, and say the international NGOs, unless it's, an, again, it's a national disaster and we need to do a search and rescue and immediate response, that's something else. This part, I don't know even about it. But when we are in a context like that, our role should be limited, and it's a big role already, to accompany national pro service providers, national entities in their own efforts to provide the services, but, to develop them. But what's the point? Maybe the country is doomed. Maybe it's doomed. You know what I'm saying? 
Okay, so now you there are some so fortunate example. girls who are getting help from the institutes that you built. But it's maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being cynical yeah, here, yeah, yeah. but maybe it's meaningless because too many, oh, so I'll many girls you, are I, being raped I'll and murdered. You, no, so either you go in and finish it, if you're in, like, if either, if, let's take Syria, either the US goes in and finish it, no, finishes it, black or, or you don't like do anything. That. No, but I'll this give you an example. Middle... No, I'll give you an example. For example, uh, in South Sudan, there was a place. Um, Talk to the mic. Sorry. Uh, there was a place where there was no international actors present because it was really stable. You know, international NGOs, they like to go where the money goes, where there's an emergency, blah, blah, blah. So there was nobody. So there was this really small NGO, uh, national, community-based, called Maya, very amazing people. And they, talk, they came to us and they said, listen, Ophelia, we, 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 we don't have a war in our, in our place, in our region, in our district, but we have a lot of social problems and we want to do something, okay? The population loves us, we do the, they, they organize theaters and activities for the children, so they have a lot of trust in the communities. They have it already. Why? Because they're already in the communities, they're part of the community. So they have this trust that we will never get, okay? Us international. So they said, we want to use this trust by starting building services. So we, wor we started working with them. And then the war came in their place. So they started to be overwhelmed by the needs because everybody came to them. Um, children who lost their parents. Um, mothers who, had their, who ended up single mothers because their, 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 their um, husbands were killed during the war. Uh, people who've been raped, people who lost their families, a lot of elderly who could not build, rebuild their shelter, all kind of really solid, like strong social cases. And they came, they came to them. So the more the cases they were receiving, the more support they needed from us to build their capacity, not to intervene directly. That would have been easier. Bring a couple of social workers in Israel to intervene directly. No, we really work with them to build that system so that when there is a social challenge from the communities, because they are trusted by the communities, they can actually provide services. And they did such an amazing work by actually numbers like uh, reaching more than 50,000, 60,000 people in uh, six months in need, that all the eyes of the, community, of the donor community started to look at them. Mm -hmm. Not at uh, the big NGOs anymore, but the, one, the small NGO, tiny NGO, who actually managed to provide services directly in the communities. So, yes, of course, there will always be war and drama and trauma and displacement. But what we're here to do is actually trying to build some sort of community-based uh, mechanism, response and prevention, to support those in need right away. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it works. If us as international, we go and provide, it won't work. They'll come get the food and leave. But if you actually work, it takes more time. But on the long term, it's, it's, it's more sustainable. It's, it's more impact oriented. If you take the time to actually build that structure with local NGOs that have already the trust in the communities, then you actually make a difference. And I've seen it. I have seen, and the difference come from where? From those national ones. So now what we have, We have UNICEF, who used to give us the money to us, Israel. 
And then uh, we distribute it to our uh, national partners. Now they do such a great job that UNICEF is going to go directly to the national partners. And this is when you know you've been successful. Does it mean we're going to lose our job? No, there's so much need. If, if we don't go there, then we go to another district or another NG- national Hashem, NGO. There are so many wars broken. So let, this is what we should be striving for, that yeah. the, 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 the national entities, the small community-based organization get the money get the, the 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 ownership the empowerment so because at the end this this is them those are the one who deliver the services okay thank Hopefully. you so thank much. you so much it was fascinating incredible good luck you back I want to talk more <laughs> are you back <laughs> to uh, another beer <laughs> <laughs> this is the same we'll invite you we'll invite you again <laughs> <laughs>